It's a little early to be thinking about lunch, but just for a moment, think about buffets. Think about all-you-can-eat buffets. Aren't they great? You know what's so great about all-you-can-eat buffets is not so much that it's all-you-can-eat, because honestly, I usually don't make it past the first plate. You know, you can just fill that first plate full, and then you're full. So it's not about all you can eat. The, the, they market it that way, that the value is in you know, one price, all the food you want, which is actually kind of gross when you think about it because they, you could call it the all-you-can-keep-down buffet if, <laughs> if you think of it that way. But that's not as marketable, so they say all-you-can-eat. But really what makes you like all-you-can-eat buffets is not that there's an unlimited amount of food, but that you get to eat whatever you want. You go to a big buffet and there's all kinds of stuff there, but you only choose from the, from the buffet what you want to eat. Like, for example, if you don't like green bean casserole, you don't have to eat it. You just pass it by. If you don't really care for yams, but if you don't, you can just let them lay there in the film that covers them. <laughs> if you, you don't have to eat anything you don't want. When you're done and you're ready to eat, you're holding a plate full of food that represents your preferences. And the great thing about all you can eat is you can eat all you want of what you want. That is what makes an all-you-can-eat buffet so attractive to us. It's not so much that it's all-you-can-eat, but it's what you want to eat. Now think about, instead of buffets, think about the Bible. Because from our culture's perspective, this book is a buffet. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet. And you can walk down the aisle of, of the Bible and you have your plate there and you can put everything you want on your plate. And if there's something in here you don't like, then you just skip it right along with the yams and the green bean casserole. You just step aside. And when you're done, when you're done, you have a life. You have a plate full of your preferences in scripture. But we all remember as children, if we were given that preference before our parents, as we're sitting at the dinner table, that wasn't going to fly, was it? <laughs> sitting at the dinner table at home is not a buffet where you get to pick and choose. You have to eat it. And in the case, like with my folks, you had to sit there till you were done and eat, and eat it all which is why I don't like green bean casserole anymore. <laughs> but the Bible, though, it gives us what we need, not what we prefer. Sometimes those things overlap, but there are many times that we will come to the Scripture and we will see something that we would rather not consume we would rather pass it on by. But God puts it on our plate. 
The interesting thing, though, about the Lord is he won't make us eat it. He will allow us to get up from the table and push away and walk away. But our life is designed to eat the full meal. God designed our hearts to need the full menu of what he has given us. And when we only eat what we want to eat, we do not grow into the people that the Lord wants us to be. And we really do ourselves a disservice when we don't eat uh, what the Lord is serving us. The Apostle Paul told us that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The life that we want to live is a life that yields itself to all of Scripture, not just parts. One of the great benefits of going through a book of the Bible, as we've said before, like I remember uh, the couple of times and we were going through Mark, it'd been fine if we skipped those passages because they're tough. And one of the great benefits of going through Scripture is that it forces us to deal with vegetables. It forces us to deal with not just the, the strawberry shortcake that we want to eat, but with the parts of Scripture that are so helpful for our perspective because it stretches us beyond our preferences. As Rex was sharing, reading that quote, it reminded me of a quote by Brennan Manning, and uh, I looked it up because I want to read it to you. Brennan Manning says this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Those who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now we're far from perfect and being far from perfect is part of telling the truth. But as Christians we should make every effort to display Jesus' character not, uh, not to try to impress others with our holiness. So let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. And you may be tempted, if you're not married, to think that this doesn't apply to you. But it really does. Because remember, 1 Peter is being, was written and is relevant to us as... Believers living in a fallen world as fallen people. Peter reminds us that the trials that we face, as hard as they are, are only temporary. We live as aliens and strangers in a world, and we're headed to another place that's going to be fabulous. But until then, we live as aliens and strangers in a world with trials that are temporary, trials that are necessary because they prove our faith, and it's only when we, we face uh, a sovereign God or our belief in a sovereign God that we can face our trials or our suffering with any sense of peace of mind. Suffering, is, suffering injustice is one of the most illogical and unsolvable problems in the world if we do not 
submit to the fact that God has a bigger plan. Well, let's read just the first few words here, literally, of the first verse of 1 Peter chapter 3. And then it's then we need to look at the context before we just read the passage. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Peter writes, In the same way, you wives. So let's pause. Let's pause and look at the context, because the context is essential. Peter says, in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way forces us to go back and to look at what Peter's talking about. First, Peter discusses our behavior. And when we talk about the Brennan Manning quote, for example, of living in a foreign world, it's exactly what Peter is talking about in this book, about our behavior. Look at a couple of passages, if you would, with me. Look back at chapter 1, verse 17. First Peter 1, 17 says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. And remember when we went through that, we talked about the fact that our conduct, conduct yourselves or your conduct in fear or in reverence to God, is not in terror, but in respect to God. That's what that means. But it's speaking of our conduct. Um, Next look at chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles with the purpose, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay, look a little farther down to another behavior he mentions. Maybe it'll pop up here in a minute. But the context is your behavior in the world. The behavior that we live in, in the world. The behavior that we exemplify before the Lord is a behavior that should honor God. Yeah, I'm hearing 16, and that's, that's not it, but, but thank you. I mean, we could really almost drop a finger and it would work because so much of what Peter's talking about focuses on our behavior. And then he gets very specific in several realms. He gives the generality in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent. But then he gets very specific. Beginning in verse 13, he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So he mentions our submission to government or to governing officials. Then in verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters. And so there is the context of the one for whom you are serving or working. And then he gives the example of Jesus who also submitted himself to the Father's will. In fact, we're told that he submitted so much to the Father's will and his suffering, he kept entrusting himself, verse 23, to the one who judges righteously. So, basically what Peter is saying is, in the same way, 
in the same way that you submit to an ungodly government, in the same way as you submit to an ungodly boss, in the same way that Christ submitted himself to God who judges righteously, so, chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that, again, there's a purpose, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Note that Peter isn't saying that women in general are to be submissive to men in general. He's not saying that at all, but wives to their own husbands. It's not an issue of gender, but it is an issue of God's established authority. For example, me as a male uh, American, if I am stopped by a female police officer, I have to submit to her authority. When I worked uh, in a nonprofit, I had a boss who was a female, and I submitted to her authority. So it's not a male-female issue. It is a, it is a situation where God has put a particular authority over a, a particular person. This is God's doing. And notice the command is issued to the wife as her responsibility. Peter doesn't say, in the same way you husbands, be aware your wife's supposed to submit to you. Doesn't say that. It's addressed to the wife. We've said before that, that uh, the Bible rarely speaks in terms of our rights. It very frequently speaks in terms of our responsibilities. This is what we're responsible before God to do. And a literal translation would be continually submit yourselves. It is a choice that she makes moment by moment, and ultimately it is a submission to God. And Peter says there's a reason you're doing this. Suppose There's a purpose. So that, and Peter gives a context, a scenario here. He says, even if any of them are disobedient to the word. So there's a context here, again, of being in a, uh, under an authority that is not godly, under an authority that isn't interested in following Jesus Christ. Even if you're in that situation, and of course that harkens back to what he talked, to in chapter, talked about in chapter 2. You, maybe you're in a government like Peter was under Nero, godless government, sees you as an alien in the world. But that's still the authority that God has over you. Same way with servants. Uh, he says, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So when, he ta when Peter talks about husbands doing the same thing here in chapter 3, being not godly, and yet a wife is supposed to submit to a, a, a man who isn't godly. Um, this is a challenge, and this is why Peter writes it, because otherwise our natural inclination would be to do something else. Peter says that when a wife's behavior can, can impact her husband, who doesn't obey the, the word, she does this by the way she lives. And first of all, note, note Peter says how she's not to do it. She's not to do it with her words. In fact, P. Heaving says that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. 
And that word for behavior is a word that we've seen several times throughout uh, 1 Peter already. So it's in a context that's larger than just marriage. So if they're disobedient to the word, meaning disobedient to the word of God, she is to win her husband without a word by behavior. Look at verse 2 as he elaborates. He says, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. I once heard Howard Hendricks tell a story of a, a woman that came to him for counseling one time. Uh, and it's only as Hendricks can share it. But, but said that this lady came and that she was just telling Hendricks all about you know, her husband. And here's, here's all the things that the husband is doing. And she just she can't get through to him. You know, he just won't trust Jesus Christ. And so Hendricks opened the text and, and had her read this. And uh, they got to, they didn't get even past verse 1. And it says that they may be one without a word. And Hendricks said that she said, without a word? You mean I can't say anything? Without a word. Hendricks said. And then, uh, then he said to her, so is there anything, anything that your husband actually enjoys? Oh, yes, she said. There is a stew that I make that he absolutely loves, but I can't stand to make it because it, it stinks. It smells up the whole house. And Hendricks says, that is your assignment. She says, oh, I just don't think I could do that. He says, oh, that's your assignment. So she went home, she went to work, put, making this stew. And I kid you not, when she came back the next time that she got together with Hendricks, he asked how it went, and she said that as soon as her husband walked in the door and smelled the stew, his words were, quote, my God, what happened to that woman? Now, it sounds sort of silly to think that food could change somebody's life. But it wasn't the meal. It was somehow the Lord used this woman's willingness that, her, that it would be her behavior and not her words that would impact this man's life. And for some reason, that was the turning point for them. A husband can't ignore this kind of behavior because it is proof positive that God is a supernatural God. Only God can give the power to do what Peter is saying. And just as the wife, we're told, is to have a continual behavior, also literally Peter writes that the observation of the husband in verse 2, as they observe, you, you, could, you could pencil in ab above observe continually, as they continually observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The word there for chaste means pure, and it means pure of mind and motive. That your motive is not manipulation. Your motive is to just lay it out and let God do what only God can do. So at what point then, if without a word, does she share the gospel with the man? Well, later in the book, and we've mentioned it a couple of times already in class. 1 Peter 3.15 talks about being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that is within you. 
There will come an opportunity when someone looks at your life and sees Jesus Christ that they'll say, why in the world are you acting so, so much like this? And your response can be, let me tell you about my Lord. I love what Ruth Graham once said about her husband, Billy. She said, it's my job to love Billy. It's God's job to make him good. Look at verse 3. Peter goes on and says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. I remember several years ago, our family went to Six Flags, and it must have been like, I don't know, uh, I want to say cult day, because I don't think it was cults, but you know, sometimes they'll have special days, you know, where special groups get to go, well, we just somehow drew the lot to go and be with this, it was almost like Ma Kettle Day. <laughs> there was this group of, of women, religious people that were there, and they all were just dressed head to toe in these burlap sacks with, you know, hats on. And it's like nothing was showing but their faces and their arms are all covered. It's 95 degrees. But they were applying First Peter, you know, 3.3. 3. Your adornment must not be, you can't wear gold jewelry or hair and all this. So, so that's not, Peter's not saying that you have to look like Ma Kettle. Look, look at actually what he is saying. He doesn't say, don't braid your hair or don't wear gold jewelry, because if he is, he's also saying, don't wear clothes. <laughs> See? Or putting on dresses. The translators have added the word merely to help us out there. Your adornment must not be merely external. It's not a matter of what you put on. It's a matter of priority. It's your focus as a woman is not simply how you, how you appear on the outside, but the inside. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. To have a gentle and quiet spirit is not, doesn't mean that you don't say anything. I, I looked at this and it said that uh, the word gentle it's only used four times. This word for gentle is only used four times in the New Testament. The other three times that it's used are on the lips of Christ. And twice he is describing himself. One of those instances he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. To have a gentle spirit, like Peter is saying, is to be like Jesus. It's related to a word that means not pushy or selfishly assertive and not demanding your own way. It means basically a peaceful spirit. And Peter says, it is precious in the sight of God. That word for precious literally means expensive. It is pricey in, in the sight of God. And it stands in stark contrast to the priority of the world in Peter's day and the priority of the world in our day. It's all external today. That's what gets marketed. When's the last time you saw a magazine on character? 
We'll never see it. It's all on the externals. Peter not only uses Jesus as an example, but he goes on to use some other women. Verse 5. He says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Where did Sarah call Abraham Lord? Keep your finger here in 1 Peter 3 and turn back to Genesis chapter 18. And let's take a quick look at what Peter's referring to. Genesis 18. You remember their story, Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children. They didn't have any children of their own. They, uh, they had had a child by the, the handmaid, Hagar, Abraham's son, Ishmael, but not Sarah. Sarah did not have a child. Sarah had an adopted child, but not one of her own. And so in Genesis 18, look at verse 10, uh, verse 9. The Lord shows up and makes an announcement. Genesis 18, 9. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. It's sort of a throwaway reference in verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself. Literally, if you look in the mar margin, it says she laughed within. The Bible records her thoughts. No one heard her say this. In other words, she didn't have to say it. She didn't have to refer to Abraham as Lord. And the word Lord there, it should be in lowercase, and yours, I sure hope it is, in lowercase, but the word doesn't refer to Lord in the sense of uh, lording it over, or certainly Lord in the sense of God. But it was a respectful term of, of recogni recognition of authority. And even in a context where Sarah was in unbelief, at this moment she was doubting, to, she was struggling to trust God with this miracle. But even in a context of unbelief, it was such second nature to her to have that relationship with Abraham that even in her thoughts, she referred to him as Lord. And again, it's difficult for us to think Lord, but don't think of Lord in the sense of, of anything improper, but only in the sense of God's proper orientation or ranking 
in the home. Okay, back to 1 Peter 3. Peter uses Sarah as an example here. And if you're familiar with the life of Sarah, you know that Sarah followed Abraham in the face of some pretty crazy leading. Let's leave Ur. Let's leave our successful life that we've built together and let's follow God to a land that I have no idea where we're going. Oh, and by the way, you won't have a house. You'll be living in a tent forever. Is that okay? She followed. She followed. She even followed to Egypt during a time of Abraham wandering himself in doubt and unbelief. Peter gives us the key that Sarah, and then he also says, like the holy women of old, continually hoped in God. Uh, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. To be a child of someone is to, be, to take on their, their characteristics. To be a son of encouragement, like Barnabas's name means son of encouragement, means that you are an encourager, like the son of the one who is an encourager. To be a child of Sarah or a daughter of Sarah means that you are like her. And note that, Abra that uh, Peter says, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. It's fearful to submit. It's fearful to submit to an authority that even when the authority may be making the wrong decision. Abraham didn't make right decisions all the time. He didn't. And there's not a husband uh, alive that ever has. So it's not a matter of, of following only when it's right. It's a matter of following because uh, it's right to do so, unless the husband is requiring sin, which takes us back to the other realms of authority. The government requires us to sin. We don't submit to that. If a husband requires sin, you don't submit to that. God's not asking. God's not telling you to do that. If, if there's sin required. But if it's not sin, if it's just a decision, then, um, then it is your responsibility to do that. Well, so moving forward, now Peter turns the canon the other direction. Look at verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Just like Peter said with the wife in verse 1, in the same way, verse 7, he begins the same way. He says, you husbands, in the same way. It's a context of submission. And the husband is submitting to the greater, his greater authority to God. Pointing back, both of these pointing back to Jesus Christ in the context just before. Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father, even in a suffering circumstance. And he was honored for that. Uh, godly leadership, Peter says, includes love. Our culture tends to look at a gentle man or a man who is tender as a weak man. We tend to look at you know the John Wayne of of uh, as a real man. But I honestly, I can only see a couple of John Wayne movies where he he was a gentle guy. Um, 
Most of the time, he wasn't. The husband is to live with his wife, Peter says, in an understanding way. Literally, the text says, according to knowledge. It means to seek to understand her because she's different. Peter even says it. She is a woman. She is different physically. He calls her the weaker vessel. The word vessel is referring to her body. She's weaker physically. She's not a man. And it reminds me of that, um, that comical scene. You remember the scene in the movie My Fair Lady? Remember that My Fair Lady? The movie with, with uh, Rex Harris. Yep, Harrison. And, uh, but he has that, that crazy scene where he, as Professor Higgins, is frustrated with the fact that why can't a woman be more like a man? And he even sings a song. Do you remember the words? Why can't a woman be more like a man? This is, this is crazy. <laughs> Men are so honest, so thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair. Who, when you win, will always give your back a pat? Why can't a woman be like that? Why does everyone do, why does everyone do what the others do? Can't a woman learn to use her head? Why do they do what their mothers do? Why don't they ever grow up like their father instead? Why can't a woman take after a man? One man in a million may shout a, a little bit. Now and then there's one with slight defects. One perhaps whose truthfulness you doubt a bit, but by and by, but by and large, we're a marvelous sex. Why can't a man, a woman, be more like a man? Because men are so friendly, good-natured, and kind. A better companion you'll never find. If I were hours late for dinner, would you bellow? If I forgot your silly birthday, would you fuss? Would you complain if I went out with a friend? Why can't a woman be more like us? And then he ends with a final verse, which I won't read, but he basically says, why can't a woman be like me? Literally, that's what he says. And that's really what it all boils down to in his frustration. Why can't the world revolve around me? The song is ridiculous, and it's, and it's, and it's meant to be. It's meant to show the ridiculous nature of a flawed culture. We laugh at it because it's so ridiculous. And yet, how many times uh, has this been played out in reality? When Peter refers to her as a weaker vessel, it doesn't mean that she's inferior. It simply means that she's different. Um, because Peter says, grant her honor as a fellow heir an equal in the grace of life, a fellow heir in the grace of life. Regarding the image of God, male and female, he created them, both in the image of God. Authority has nothing to do with superiority. It has everything to do with responsibility. And the word here for honor, to honor her, grant her honor, as a fellow heir. What does that mean? It means value. The word honor refers to the worth or the merit of something or someone, and so that we treat it in a way that's different from someone else. Remember one time Kathy and I were going to the grocery store. We parked, and we got, got out of, I got out of the car and went around and opened the car door for her. This is something we've just always done. It's just second nature now. I was opening the car door for her and helping her out, and behind me, I hear a woman's voice literally blurt out, I don't believe it! 
was a woman standing 10 feet away from us. I don't believe it. She said, I didn't think anybody did that anymore. And we were both just kind of surprised, Kathy and I, as we walked in thinking about why isn't that happen all the time? Authority has nothing to do with superiority. It doesn't make him right. But here's what it does mean. It makes him accountable. It makes him responsible. And it's not just a cultural thing. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned. Eve sinned first, but when God came time to pay the piper, who did he call for? Adam, where are you? And as soon as Adam was confronted with his sin, what did Adam do? The woman. But that didn't cut it with the Lord. Adam was still held responsible. Adam was still held responsible. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Of course, it has a lot more to do with opening car doors. It has to do with the day in and day out of life. Peter gives us these commands, both to wives and to husbands, because it's where we struggle. Our nature wants to go the other direction. Our nature wants to go with the flow of our culture, which doesn't do these things, and honestly ridicules those of us that believe the Bible actually means what it says. It's one of those parts of the, buff the Bible buffet that we want to skip. It's one of those dishes that we just think, eh. And even in some Christian cultures or Christian circles today, scholars have found a way to interpret around what this is actually saying. To which I want to say, then what's the timeless truth? If the timeless truth isn't referring to what it says, then what is it referring to? Peter summarizes now in verse 8. He says, to sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Not only in the home, but in the government and in the workplace. When Peter says to sum up or in summary, he doesn't just mean in the home, but rather in the context that he said everything prior to this. In your behavior, from verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11 on, talking about behavior, excellent behavior among the Gentiles, with the government, with servants and masters, or in the home. He says your behavior should be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble. How do you do that? Verse 9, it's not a, simply a matter of action, but it's a, it's a decision regarding reactions. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. The book of Proverbs says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. That's something that we can all apply. You want to turn away wrath? You want to diffuse a situation that could get out of control? Give a gentle answer. Don't respond in kind. Respond by being kind. Don't return evil for evil. 
And the evil in this context is your words. Uh, literally, the word here for return is payback. Don't pay back evil with evil words. And our example, once again, is Christ. Remember in chapter 2, verse 23, it says, while being reviled. Remember we said last week that that word revile is words that sting, words that wound. While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. But what did he do? He did no utter threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In every one of these contexts, in every one of the contexts, whether it's government, whether it's the workplace, whether it's Jesus, or whether it's the home, there is this assumption that you will be having to deal with injustice or having to, to struggle against ungodliness. How do you do that? You keep entrusting yourself to the one who knows the truth, realizing that you may not even know all the truth about yourself. And so we need to be humble, humble in spirit, um, Peter writes in verse 8. And give a blessing. Why? Why give a blessing? Because we were called for that very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, he took away every punishment that we have coming for our sin. He took it on himself. And he gave us an inheritance that would be a blessing. We can mirror that in the lives of other people. When they, when they initiate, in any of these contexts, when they initiate something that is wounding, to respond instead with, uh, with grace, with blessing. Not easy, is it? And yet... How transformational is a world that can see this kind of change? I'll read one more time that quote from Brennan Manning, and it'll have a little more context for you now. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Those who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for the example of Jesus Christ who shows us the big picture, that he takes a perspective that goes far beyond the suffering that he was dealing with in the moment. For if all of our life focuses on simply the moment, then we will, we must deal with the injustice right then and there. But because it doesn't revolve in that moment, we can be like Jesus. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to rise above the tide of our culture. Help us to rise above the, the tide even of our own natural reactions and to respond instead like Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, who while being reviled did not revile in return. And we ask, Lord, that as we do this, that what your, your word says, that the government would see our response and give, give glory in the day of visitation, that masters or bosses would be, their lives would be transformed, that husbands and wives' lives would be transformed by the godly response and the godly living represented in this room. Father, we can all apply it, whether we're married or single, and ask that as we leave today, 
that you'd give us the grace to live and to react and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.